This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're foraging. From Prospect Park to an iPhone app, what does it mean to find our own food? We've recorded, I think, over 1,300 species of fungi occurring in New York City. You know, my ingredients are making themselves, and so that rather than having the stress of needing to source the things I need, I can just walk out my back door and I can have them. Foraging overall is born out of living with the land and with the seasons by indigenous people. Tune in to Meet and 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Feast Meets West, the show celebrating Asian cuisine and culture as we have conversations with the passionate people from the world of Asian food. I'm your host, Linda Liu. We've got another inspirational story for you coming out of COVID. Early last year, Eric Huang left his sous chef position at 11 Madison Park to open his own restaurant. However, the unexpected pandemic forced Eric to switch gears. Since opening a fine dining restaurant was no longer an option, Eric started using his family's restaurant, Peking House, in Fresh Metals, Queens, which closed during the pandemic to dabble in his own projects. He wanted something that would keep the lights on, pay the rent, and also worked as a delivery concept as New Yorkers dined at home. What came out of that was Peking House, where Eric has now perfected chili fried chicken dinners, buttermilk brined and country fried, finished with Tianjin chilies and Sichuan peppercorn, with rotating seasonal sides. The chicken is so in demand, there is even an 8 to 10 week waitlist for delivery. What started as an experiment is now far more successful than Eric could have ever imagined and taking him down a culinary path that he never expected, but is far more rewarding and fun than he ever thought it would be. Now, here's my conversation with Eric. Welcome, Eric. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, thanks, Linda. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, Happy to be here. Yeah, so let's start with the origin story behind Pecking House. Yes. Uh, so there was, well, still, obviously, there's a restaurant called Peking House, the uh, Wade Giles romanization of Beijing. Uh, that was my family's first restaurant in America. So my mother and father ran that restaurant, took it over from the original owners in the late 70s. Uh, it's been in my family ever since. Um, my uncle has been running it since the year 2000 uh, when my Unfortunately, my father passed away. Um, but, you know, I hadn't thought about it in a really long time. And when the pandemic struck, um, it was just sitting there empty and there weren't any customers and it was obviously not operating. And so my cousin approached me about, you know, maybe trying to do something there uh, to play around in the kitchen and, you know, to figure out some means of paying the rent. And uh, we landed on fried chicken dinners after a lot of testing and a lot of head scratching. And uh, my fiance came up with the very playful name Pecking House, reminiscent of chickens, of course. And uh, that started last September 2020. So, you know, we're about nine months old now. And uh, it's a fried chicken delivery operation that operates out of Queens, um, 14 miles away from Manhattan. And we deliver fried chicken uh, five days a week. 
yeah, how did you land on fried chicken as the item to anchor your business around? Um, well, it wasn't the original plan by any means, because <laughs>、uh, as we all know, fried food does not travel particularly well. But there was extremely limited means of cooking at this restaurant. There's a few woks, there's two deep fryers, and there's a broiler that doesn't work, an oven that doesn't work, and、uh, a four top burner that only two of the burners work. Wow, chop challenge, next level. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you know, there were things that I could make, you know, small batches of, but nothing that I could do in any serious volume other than fried chicken. Believe it or not, at least that's the things we tested. Um, but we tested some other ideas, you know, some seafood noodles,、uh, grilled chicken and rice,、uh, some barbecue,、uh, you know, Cantonese barbecue ideas. But、uh, the fried chicken was the best thing we we made in in testing. And so once we kind of agreed that this was the best thing, it kind of went backwards and thought, you know, what's the what's the best way to make this survive transit and make it、uh, have as long of a shelf life, so to speak, as possible. So. It wasn't.、Uh, <laughs> it wasn't a lot of particularly genius ideas. It was just、uh, this is what we can do here. So we're kind of forced our hand that way. So interesting. And how do you keep your chicken crispy during the delivery process?、Um, so we use something called Evercrisp. It's a、uh, modified starch that. Uh, is made by Modernist Pantry. People,、uh, company I used to work with when I was a chef at Old Madison Park. I think they do really cool stuff.、Um, I'm not like a particularly modernist、uh, chef in that I, you know, the kind of techniques we're thinking of.、Um, I haven't cooked that way a lot in my career, but I do like you know subtle practical applications of、um, you know a little bit more refined science, if you will, when we can. And、uh, you know, without getting too deep into it, it's a modified wheat dextrin that keeps food crispy. For several hours, and、uh, that's very true. I have had many people tell me that, you know, even after we deliver the chicken, they eat it and then they go back for a little bite after it's been in the fridge at two in the morning.、Um, it's still crispy, so it, it does what it <laughs> it does what it's advertised、uh, to do. And、uh, you know, the magic of science, despite me being a terrible science student growing up. But、uh, and then we also use a really nice container.、Uh, there was a lot of container research. Not something I. Intended on making part of my life as a fine dining chef, but alas, here we are.、Uh, so there is a container. It has a ridged bottom, so it allows for ventilation. It's a non-condensing lid, so、uh, that's very critical to the operation as well. So we think it does a pretty good job of delivering food that's crispy. So yeah, and was this a custom container, or did it already exist on the market, and you just had to go through so much testing to find that? Um, it did exist already. It was hard to find. They don't make a lot of them, and I, we, there were a、you、few phone calls. You can't just Google it.、Uh, you can, but they don't make it a lot of it because it's it's kind of a strange niche product. So when we started getting really busy, and I was getting on the phone with them,、uh, you know, everyone's having supply chain issues and COVID, obviously, but especially with、right. this product, which is a very strange shape and、uh, make of container that, you know, I'm sure they, you know. Put in their catalog, obviously, but never planned on making a great deal of. We had to kind of convince them, like, "Hey, so we need like ten cases of this a week," and、uh, <laughs> so there was a little bit of finagling there. But、um, it, I mean, you could find it feasibly. I, I don't see why else you would need it unless you were also delivering long-range fried chicken. But、uh, it is available, and it is rather pricey,、um, but it's worth it to me. It is for sure. And what's the flavor profile? 
of your chicken that makes it so unique and popular? Um, so I think kind of unintentionally we created, <laughs> I, I created a really uh, unique style of fried chicken. And, you know, that's probably due to my creative process being extremely unrefined and uh, improvisational, which drives my fiance crazy. She hates that I just kind of shoot from the hip all the time. <laughs> but this time it happened to work out. And uh, it wasn't anything, you know, I particularly hemmed and hawed and thought about and you know, bolts of lightning inspiration kind of moment. It was just like, Hey, this is, you know, my favorite way of frying chicken, which is a country style buttermilk fried, um, you know, style of chicken. And, uh, I was becoming familiar with Nashville hot chicken at the time. And I was watching videos of them applying this, this pepper paste over it. And I was like, Oh, there's, there's something more here. We can do more. So, um, we laced the, the paste with a lot of good stuff, a lot of good flavors and seasonings and, um, you know, instead of just using the fryer oil, which is traditional in hot chicken, we use a little bit of duck fat, which obviously makes everything better. It all makes all fried foods better. And, uh, you know, in terms of flavor profile, I think something that a lot of Western cuisine overlooks a lot of time is just the straight up use of sugar. Um, that's obviously something that's very prevalent in Chinese cooking, but it does have a distinctly sweet profile to it without being, you know, cloying or dessert like, obviously. Um, but it really helps round out the heat and, uh, you know, as we know from sugar and cooking with soy sauce that, uh, this very umami MSG kind of flavor profile just really needs sugar to kind of round it out. So, uh, it's definitely spicy. I wouldn't consider it, you know, blow your head off spicy, but it's, it's a medium heat. It's got that slow burn, as we like to say, and as many people have told me. And, uh, it's crispy. It has, you know, little traces of duck fat that make it really rich and uh, satisfying and juicy and obviously we like to think we cook it pretty well and uh, yeah it has heat and acid as well uh, from the chilies so there's a lot of things going on there and I think that's what makes it very craveable and uh, yeah it's checking off a lot of boxes <laughs> <laughs> yeah for sure um, and uh, obviously you know just that little bit of MSG in there just like it gives it that savoriness that is just really hard to replicate without you know brute forcing soy sauce or fish sauce into it. You know what I mean? So <laughs> I fully embrace sugar, cooking with sugar and MSG. The fear mongering is unnecessary and uh, hurtful to our, to our cuisine. So a hundred percent. I realize you also have um, some sides where you like rotate in different dishes. Um, will you be expanding to other main dishes beyond fried chicken? Um, so I think, that fried chicken with seasonal sides will always be at the heart of what Peking House is. Um, I think it very much kind of fits that Japanese philosophy towards cooking where you do one thing and you do it really well. Um, obviously, sometimes they take that a little extreme with their, you know, their eel masters and their, uh, you know, yakiniku masters who just... <laughs> <laughs> they do one thing for their entire lives and they master it, which is incredibly admirable. But uh, it, it's it's in that vein. We'll always focus on fried chicken and we're actually debuting a fried chicken sandwich next weekend at the market line. We're doing a little pop up there and we're going to try a fried chicken sandwich. And uh, yeah, I mean, I would love to expand to other things. My favorite food in the world is buffalo wings. Um, my last meal would probably be buffalo wings, you know, pretty, pretty low brow taste over here, but that's okay. And uh you know, I would love to research and test a way 
to make a really unique style and delicious style of wings. I just always love eating that kind of stuff. So um, it will always be firmly kind of rooted in this kind of playful intersection of Chinese and Southern cooking. So uh, we love to cook for the market. I love cooking for the market, you know, using season, us- using produce that's in season and at its best. And uh, I think forcing yourself to, to change the menu is really important. That's how you continue to grow. And that's something I really learned in fine dining and has stayed with me. It, uh, you learn a lot of things, even if people are kind of coming to you and be like, Oh, where's this? You know, I love this so much. And it's not on your menu right now. And it's like, you know, we gotta, we gotta grow. We gotta change. We gotta push ourselves. So <laughs> we try to always embrace that spirit. Right. I'm sure all of your customers are very much looking forward to additional exploration. Um, did you have any ideas that uh, this operation would be this successful? According to your website FAQ, I'm seeing here that the current wait uh, for your chicken is approximately eight weeks. Yeah, it's like eight, nine, maybe ten weeks. <laughs> um, <laughs> wow, it, the it's the hottest it's list on town. It's long. Um, Although my, my alma mater, Love Madison Park, just threw down the 15,000 person waitlist gauntlet and I was like, all right, fine, whatever, guys. Uh, <laughs> um, I absolutely had no idea that this was going to go that well. This was totally done on a lark. Um, I spent the first half of the pandemic helping my mother out at her restaurant. Uh, I was learning to make dim sum on the fly and, you know, making myself her, her stand in dim sum chef because, yeah, none of her, you know, at that time in the beginning of the pandemic, no one knew what was going on. So no one really felt safe working. Right. And so it was just kind of my mother and I, actually my, my fiance, <laughs> um, who was also a chef. She wasn't my fiance family. at the time. <laughs> yeah. We were all in there, you know, shucking peas, making dumplings, all that. And that's, uh, not really what my skill set was at all. Dim sum is so much like pastry work, which I'm famously really bad at. Um, so, uh, it was, it was really challenging. I learned a ton. Um, but working <laughs> in my family's restaurant could be, uh, with my mother, we can, we can butt heads a lot for sure. So I was like, Oh God, I just, I just need some space. So that when my cousin approached me about, you know, Hey, there's an entirely empty restaurant for you to play in. It sounded like a blessing at the time and it still is, but <laughs> so we, we went over there and honestly, in the beginning, I was just hustling hard to sell 30 meals a week. Um, Mm-hmm. asking all my friends to help out and you know all the the social media influencers i could find to spread the word about it right. and then okay. it, one press hit came and it was it was really great for us and it's been rolling ever since and uh by no means did i ever think this was going to be what i focused on what i what i built my career on but I, i've really found it really enjoyable and really rewarding and it's been pleasantly surprising and also kind of upsetting at some times, but mostly pleasantly surprising across the way. And, um, that I, I would never have thought when I started cooking 10 years ago, one day, if, if future Eric went to 2008, Eric and was like, Hey, you're going to have one day an 8,000 person waiting list for fried chicken that you made. Um, that, that young Eric would be very, very confused. So (laughs) (laughs) that's right. Yeah. Um, so how many people did you start the operation with and how many people are in your uh, pecking house team now? Uh, just one beginning, just me literally <laughs> doing everything. <laughs> um, gave me the keys. I just showed up. I, 
cooked and cleaned up after myself. I drove all the deliveries myself. I, I did everything. And, you know, no, no, none of the purveyors I worked with in the restaurants I used to work with, you know, they're like, dude, I can't ship you like a $40 order <laughs> because like, you're only making, you know, like 15 meals that day or whatever. Um, so I was literally buying things at the supermarket. I'd go into the Union Square market myself and, uh, I learned a great deal. And then when we got our first press hit and I kind of unintentionally spawned this waitlist password process that some people think is really disgusting and arrogant and other people find really charming. But I'll just tell everyone that was a total accident. It's only because I have no idea how to build a website and it just happened that way. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, just me for a really long time, but uh, I've been slowly bringing on people along the way and Geez, what is the team now? I mean, the team is like got about a roster of nine to ten drivers. Um, wow! I, I'm a business partner, Maya, who I used to work with at Gramercy Tavern, who's is going the long run with me on this, and she's been super, super helpful and amazing. Um, she's my, she's the best number two I could ever hope for, and then uh, a whole bunch of other people who help with little admin tasks here and there. So yeah, I would say it's about fifteen to eighteen people which is pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible growth yeah. in such a short amount of time. Yeah, sure. And, you know, everyone's having a hard time hiring right now, so it's kind of a hard sell to be like, hey, do you want to come to the middle of nowhere in Queens and help me drive fried chicken deliveries around uh, really trafficy Manhattan? So, <laughs> But it's the hottest, hottest wait list in town, so <laughs> that's definitely <laughs> yeah. something. I try to entice them with like, you can skip the wings. I'll just give you some chicken and you can eat in your car. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more Feast Meets West. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberto's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Feast Meets West. I'm here with Eric Huang, who operates Pecking House. Um, so, Eric, what were you doing before Pecking House? So, I was a fine dining chef for over 10 years. I started cooking in 2008 in some small town restaurant, um, you know, in my, my local college town. And then I uh, went to culinary school and then I've been training in 
Michelin starred New York City restaurants ever since, uh, Cafe Balud, Gramercy Tavern, and then most recently, 11 Madison Park, where I was a sous chef. I was there for four years. And uh, the goal had always been to open my own fine dining restaurant one day. And I felt that I needed to put in the work, put in the time, learn everything I could about cooking and running a kitchen. And uh, I was finally <laughs> left to Love Madison Park in January 2020 and was ready to embark on this. Yeah, yeah. Really, really lucky timing there. Um, was ready to finally embark on this journey of opening my own restaurant after, after grinding away for 12 years. And I had no idea what I was doing, but I just took a leap of faith and was just like, we'll figure this out. And so I started the fundraising process, talking to people, trying to gather investors for, you know, this fine dining restaurant I wanted to create, which was, you know, meant to be garnering Michelin stars and bringing attention to Chinese cuisine in a way that I felt hadn't been done a great deal in, especially in New York and to challenge a lot of stereotypes and negative preconceptions people had about Chinese food, which I experienced my entire life growing up in a Chinese restaurant. And that was my North star for 10 years. I, that was always what kind of kept me going and motivated. And it's like one day it'll be worth it. You'll have your own restaurant. And then so in January, 2020, and soon enough, we all know what happens. This uh, little global pandemic pops us up and uh, threw a big, big wrench in my plans. But funny enough, it, it really worked out in so many ways. And um, it, it's been a really uh, challenging year giving up on that dream. Not giving up. I mean, I'm not totally, you know, one day I think there's a possibility I'll return to that kind of cooking. But uh, right. it was really hard to kind of relinquish that motivation for a second. I clung so tightly to that for over a decade. It was, uh, <laughs> it was, it was, I was very reluctant to let it go. But finally, when this started taking off and I saw how happy it was making people and, you know, how cool it was to provide for our team and build a team and treat people well and build their own kitchen culture that I was like, okay, this is worthwhile. This is something worth investing in and worth, uh, making my big focus in life for now. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was a big turnaround for me, the pandemic. <laughs> yeah. For better or worse. I mean, um, how long do you think you will keep going on this pecking house journey? Um, I'm, I'm all in, you know, we're looking for restaurant spaces in Brooklyn. Um, I could definitely see pecking house becoming, you know, not, not Chipotle, <laughs> but I could see mm -hmm. it becoming a multi-store kind of thing. I think it scales well and, um, I think it makes people happy. I think it's delicious. And, uh, the more people we can bring it to the better. And, uh, you know, I like to think we pay people well, we treat people well, you know, so if we can provide for, provide good jobs for people, um, teach them something along the way, can, you know, contribute to good causes where we can, you know, we, we, we try to make charity and community growth a huge focus of Pecking House. Um, and all the while we're making good food, then I feel great about that. I feel great about making that my life's journey. And, uh, I never envisioned being in quick service restaurants, fast casual, but, I actually find that I really like it. <laughs> it's kind of nice. Um, not having to worry about linen orders and, you know, chipped white plates that are $80 a piece and, you know, Zalto wine glasses that are $150 a piece. It's kind of nice not have to worry about this stuff. It's just very straightforward um, and unpretentious and straightforward experience that I think everybody can enjoy. And it's been really rewarding hearing from people who eat our food, just telling us, you know, how much it meant to them that we, 
that's when it really started to click for me. Um, when guests started telling us how much it meant to them to have a great meal in the pandemic, when things have been so hard and so stressful, that's when I was like, Oh wow. Um, this is what being a chef is about. It sounds cheesy, but it is. It's about giving emotional nurturing to people and literal sustenance to people. So, uh, you lose sight of that when you work in a Michelin star kitchen for a really long time. You know, you, you focus on a lot of different kinds of details. Um, well, that's so exciting to hear that a brick and mortar might be in the plans. Um, did you always plan on uh, following in your family, your parents' footsteps into going into the restaurant business? Uh, not at all. I was very much actively deterred from doing so. I, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's like the whole Asian immigrant narrative, right? You, your, your parents come from another country to work a quote unquote blue collar you know, restaurant job that's below their education and professional level to provide their kids with, uh, more opportunities here in, uh, in America, right? That's the American dream that we can turn the narrative around in one generation, become doctors and lawyers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so by many accounts, it's kind of a failure to go back to a restaurant and do this kind of thankless labor. But, uh, no, I was very, I was very much forced along the mono minority, classical music path. I was a cellist at the Juilliard School for quite some time. That was what my entire childhood focused around. Um, But I really (laughs) didn't like it. I, (laughs) you know, I I wanted to be, I grew up in a restaurant and I always missed the energy of being in a restaurant, the the dining room, the kitchen, the noise, the chaos. Like that's, that's kind of where I felt at home, even though, um, you know, I, I didn't learn how to cook or it was, you know, kind of difficult work, obviously, but that's where I, I really like being, you know, classical music is so isolating and lonely at times. And, uh, you know, so I went to college uh, in Chicago and then I decided I wanted to get back into restaurants. And, uh, so I did. So I started knocking around on doors and asking for someone to take me on. And then, um, you know, 10, 10, 12 years later, <laughs> here I am still cooking. But, uh, you know, I actually, it's, it's helped my mom's, re- me and my mom's relationship a lot. My mom, she's really passionate about the hospitality industry, which I think is really unique. Uh, and, uh, you know, we both feel a great, um, deal of purpose, uh, working in this kind of way and working in the restaurant industry. And, uh, you know, she, it means she criticizes my cooking a lot, but, uh, you know, I just got a good grin. And um, and how, uh, does she feel now about your booming business at Pecking House? She's been incredibly proud, which is really cool. Um, I don't think a lot of, you know, I've cooked with some Asian American kids, obviously, throughout my career. And, uh, you know, the, the thread is always that their parents were, were really against the idea of getting, of them getting into cooking. And even when they see a good deal of success and, show that they're committed, they still get a lot of, uh, they still get a lot of challenge from their parents about what they're doing and why they're doing it. So I feel very grateful that my mother's incredibly supportive. Um, she's been really proud to see how successful Pecking House has been. And, uh, you know, she likes that I'm in Queens because it's very close to her. She <laughs> still brings pizza to 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 the restaurant to feed the staff and myself uh so i'm a 34 year old man who still has pizza parties thrown by his mom it's cool very lucky and 
Yeah, it's great. I love it. <laughs> I don't have to cook that day and I love pizza. So it's awesome. Um, anything surprising you've learned while being a small business owner and chef at the same time over the last year? Uh, a lot that I could, <laughs> I could go on about a lot of crazy stuff, but, um, it's extraordinarily difficult in a very different way than the kind of cooking I was doing before. Mm-hmm. Obviously the cooking I was doing before was really intense and really strenuous and, uh, took a lot out of me, but this is even if the hours are not quite as long, a similar, if not worse, level of draining because I never, since this started, have feel like I've had a day off from it. Mm. Um, even the days I'm not at the restaurant, there's so much work to be done. There's so many things to be thinking about. And um, that's really draining <laughs> over time. And that's that's been really hard. But, uh, you know, it's kind of like... Raising a kid, I imagine, not that I've raised any kids, but <laughs> you, uh, it's, it's really, really challenging and really difficult for some time until they can kind of fend for themselves, maybe. I don't know if that analogy works because yeah, I, I so. haven't actually <laughs> raised any children, but, <laughs> but, um, yeah, that's kind of what it feels like now. It's just entirely consuming and, uh, it's not at a point where it can stand on its own yet, but yeah. hopefully soon. Well, it'll get there. I guess that's what yeah. happens with passion projects too. They're all consuming, like you said. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, you know, obviously I, it's, it's different now, you know, like every, 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 oh, I wanted to say plate, but obviously nothing's on a plate, but uh, every, every, uh, delivery box that goes out, you know, that's my name on it. That's, that's my food. That's, it's got our reputation on it. People have waited weeks and weeks and weeks for it. I, I feel a great deal of responsibility to deliver on that. Of course. So the pressure is high, even though it's quote unquote, just fried chicken. Um, so yeah, it's all consuming, but for the most part, it's more rewarding than it is, uh, you know, disappointing and destructive. So <laughs> that's all good. But, uh, um, yeah. in the few moments of free time that you have, uh, what do you do to relax? I've noticed that in the pandemic, my life didn't change a lot, my social life. So I guess I was a hermit anyway. <laughs> Um, I realized that, oh yeah, my life is pretty much the same as it was before I work. And then I, you know, stay in my apartment without the lights on for a long period of time. (laughs) Um, (laughs) yeah, I mean, I don't know. I've just like, I, cooking was always so difficult and so draining and it is so social, but you know, there's so many people to deal with. There's so many, so many social interactions you have to, um, compile on a day-to-day basis that, Usually on my days off, I just kind of sat there like really exhausted, just kind of zoning out, watching nonsense on TV or on the computer and um, hanging out with my cat. Uh, (laughs) uh, But no, I I hang out with my fiance when we can. We don't get a ton of time together, unfortunately, but we try. And, uh, you know, I I try to run as in health. And I I don't know if I would say hobby because it's not terribly enjoyable, but at least for health reasons, I try to run. And, uh, I started playing cello again after a 15 year hiatus from the instrument. Um, so I started playing a couple of years ago, trying to, trying to shake that rust off. And, uh, wow. Yeah. I mean, it's been pretty, it, it's actually been pretty nice. I, um, you know, without the weight and expectation of needing to make this your career, now it can just be kind of fun and, uh, just, you know, relaxing to a degree. I've, I've found that I enjoy the instrument a great deal more. So, uh, that's yeah, that's, 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 that's the gist of it. Not, I'm not terribly exciting social life, so. <laughs> well, you're busy. Um, 
And what do you think the restaurant industry, uh, how has it changed, if in any way, do you think, for the better or worse over this year of COVID? I know it's impacted you personally and, and your culinary path so much. Um, but what do you think about the industry as a whole? Well, I joke that COVID was, uh, you know, forcing the restaurant industry to take a time out and think about what it had done. But I do mm-hmm. think that's, uh, I do think that's accurate. I mean, the way it was being run was completely unsustainable. And obviously, tons of people have parroted that point over the past year. Um, you know, the industry in general has changed so much in the time, even that I've just been cooking, you know, 10 years sounds like a long time, but then again, it's not, especially given how much has changed in the industry. Uh, I think we need to reevaluate a lot. I think the, the biggest point is how we treat people and, um, how we treat our employees, how we pay people, all of that, you know, because this, this entire industry was running people on slave wages, basically. Um, and it's not necessarily anyone's, you know, it's not necessarily like the restaurateurs were being evil. I mean, obviously there's always bad, bad apples, but, uh, there's the margins are really tight. Everything has gotten more expensive. It's hard to run a restaurant. It's hard to make money doing a restaurant. Um, so it's not like people, there are, there are plenty of restaurateurs who, who do wish they could have paid their staff more, but they just simply couldn't make the numbers work. And, uh, I can empathize with that a great deal. Um, but in general, we need to rethink about that. We need to rethink the whole way we treat people because it's just totally unsustainable. And we've seen it now, right? It's, you know, this, this labor shortage right now in the restaurant industry, mm-hmm. there's kind of two camps. There's the people who are kind of saying, Oh, nobody wants to work. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's their fault and I just can't like find anyone, but you know, let's, let's take a second and turn the mirror around and say, okay, well, how can we make this an enticing place to work? You know, we want to pay people well. We want to, you know, I, as, 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 as proud as you want to be and how romantic to struggle is to work 12, 14 hours a day. The, the plain fact of it is it sucks. <laughs> it's, it's really unpleasant right. to work that hard for so little. And so, how can we restructure our restaurants if people aren't working 12, 14, even 16 hours a day, which was very common for me when I was, um, you know, a sous chef at three mission star restaurant. So there's a lot that's changing and mm-hmm. it's still in the process of, and unfortunately there's going to be a lot of restaurants that kind of go under and, you know, that don't survive that change. But, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's a necessary one because the way it was going, it wasn't going to last much longer. So I think it's better that we kind of had a full stop and we can think about how to redo this. Yeah. And you're like taking that new and fresh approach to packing house and your operations there as well. So that's definitely a plus. It sounds like. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm, I'm very lucky in that I got to start a business, um, fresh in a new world and, purposely build it in a different way. I understand there's, you know, the grand majority of restaurants are doing things a certain way and they kind of depend on the numbers being a certain way. And, um, it's extremely difficult to change gears in that regard. Uh, so I'm a little lucky in that way, but you know, eventually everyone's going to be forced to pivot and I already see it a lot. People are offering signing bonuses for cooks, which is something that was never a thing in my career. You know, nobody pays minimum wage anymore. I mean, you shouldn't at least, uh, <laughs> maybe there are some places, but yeah, it's, it's like kind of insulting at this point, right. To, to offer minimum wage for what is a skilled industry and what is, you know, a really, a skill requiring a, a job requiring a great deal of, of skill. So, uh, 
we'll see how it goes and we'll see what changes and who who's willing to change with it but there's still a lot uh left to see and a lot of room left to grow well eric thank you so much for chatting with me this has been really great i'm so excited for your journey ahead um for listeners that uh want to get on the pecking house hotness what should they do <laughs> so um you go to our website www.peckinghouse.com there is a google form there you can fill out uh Very it will put you on yeah you know we're, we're we're working at next level here i'm ready to start now my own cloud services <laughs> um so uh there's a google form there you can sign uh up for our wait list and we will get it to you as soon as we can. Um, but as we do mention, the wait is about nine to 10 weeks. But if you can pick up, if you can come to us, we can make it happen a lot faster. Uh, if you can figure out a way. So, um, we will, we'll try our best. But if not, you can catch us at the various pop-ups we do. Uh, we're doing a pop-up at the market line next Saturday, June 19th. And we're donating, uh, 10% of our sales to Greenwood, Greenwood Rising, uh, in society, um, group to recognize the Tulsa race massacre and uh you know that happened and um you can catch us there and check out our new fried chicken sandwich we sure will thank you Eric all right thank you I appreciate it and that's it for our show thank you dear listeners for tuning in we truly appreciate your support and it would mean so much if you could leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts We'll be back in a couple weeks with another conversation from the world of Asian food. Feast Meets West is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at Facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.